Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. How's this for a Valentine's date? A trip to the cemetery. Oakland Cemetery is hosting a walking tour this Valentine's Day weekend to share stories of love and romance that outlasted the lives of those buried on its historic grounds. The event is sold out, but Marcy Breffel, education manager of the historic Oakland Cemetery, is here to share some of the tales. Hello there. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, but I, you know, I have to say, going to a cemetery on Valentine's Day, maybe not my first thought. <laughs> a lot of people think it's a very, very odd thing to do, but you know, there's over 70,000 people buried at Oakland. And when you think about it, everyone who's buried there was either loved or loved someone else. So truly, a cemetery can be a great place to learn about love stories. Well, let's hear some of them. You can you can get something about life from a headstone. You can realize that someone was died young, or mm-hmm. or maybe they're buried next to somebody. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're buried by themselves. That's only the surface. Can you share a romantic story that you learned about residents of Oakland Cemetery? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So one of my my favorite couples that we feature on our tour is Marion Kaiser and his wife, um, Sarah Ivy. They were actually at Oakland Cemetery visiting spouses who had passed away. So Marion Kaiser was visiting his he had two wives that had died young, and Sarah Ivy was visiting the grave of her husband, Michael. And I guess the two of them just locked eyes over the <laughs> gravestones, and they began courting and fell in love. And Marion proposed marriage to Sarah, but she said, you know, I cannot leave my first husband alone forever at Oakland. So she said, you know, I'll marry you, but we've got to all be together. So Kaiser Mausoleum, you know, has Marion Kaiser. He married Sarah Ivy. And then it also has Marion's first two wives and Michael Ivy was moved in. So it's a very crowded mausoleum. <laughs> a bit of a blended family. A bit of a blended family. Absolutely. Oakland Cemetery is a place that is so rich with history. There are Confederate monuments there. There was an African-American burial ground discovered there years ago. Can you tell us a story that somehow draws in this complex history? Absolutely, absolutely. So another couple we feature on the tour is Fred Palmer and Julia Hayes Palmer. Fred was a Confederate soldier. He was a white pharmacist. He worked at Jacobs Pharmacy in Five Points, you know, downtown Atlanta. And after the Civil War, he fell in love with Julia Hayes, who was an African-American woman. And the two of them fell in love and they lived together as husband and wife at a time when interracial couples were openly discriminated against. And it was unthinkable that these two would fall in love, but they did. And they had a son, uh, Dr. Loring Palmer. I think he was born in 1881, but they were very happy together. And when Julia died, she was buried in at Oakland in the African-American burial grounds. So burials at Oakland were segregated by race basically from the early 1850s until the 1960s when all public facilities in Atlanta, including city parks like Oakland, were desegregated. 
So she died first. She was buried in the African-American burial grounds. And Fred, a white man, was buried right beside her. Wow. And they're also joined. If you go visit their grave, uh, they are together next to their son, Loring Palmer, and his wife, who I believe was a nurse. It's just there's so much history there. And actually, the Historic Oakland Foundation, we recently restored that family lot as a part of our restoration project of the African-American burial grounds. So how do you get all these facts about people who are long dead? What What is your research process like? Oh, my gosh. So a lot of it just we depend a lot on descendants. So who can share those rich anecdotes about their family? Because you can't find all these in the newspapers and the books. But a lot of it, we have some really great volunteers who just love history and they love to research. So they will often bring those stories to the foundation staff and will somehow try to work them into tours or they may appear on one of our special events. Our Capturing the Spirit of Oakland Halloween tours is the most popular event at Oakland. And we actually brought Fred Palmer and Julia Hayes Palmer to life a few years ago during this event. Sort of like a reenactment of their lives? Absolutely. So we had two actors who portrayed the couple, and they really just brought that history to life. It was such a magical experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. You also have some very famous residents there at the historic Oakland Cemetery. Any come to mind that have a love story connected? (laughs) So we say that the most visited famous resident of Oakland Cemetery is Margaret Mitchell, author of Gone with the Wind. And Margaret Mitchell had a fascinating love life. Her first love died in World War One. He was killed in World War One, And she married a man named Red Upshaw. And he read. Interesting. uh, Hmm. Um, But he was a bit of a scoundrel and their marriage was very short lived. And she ended up falling in love with a man named John Robert Marsh, who was actually the best man at her first wedding. Scandals, forbidden love. What do you get from looking at love through that lens of history, do you think? I think when we're looking at the love stories of Oakland tour, which just is so special and is such an experience when you go to Oakland, you really find that love is eternal. I mean, maybe we communicate differently than, you know, we did 100 or 200 years ago, but that kind of love, loving other people stays the same. So I think it is really a connecting tour uh, to the past. So this event is sold out. Is there any way that people who are not going to be able to be there can find out more about these stories? Sure. So the Love Stories of Oakland Tour, we actually offer it every season. We do kind of like a date night and we'll partner with local restaurants so you can really make an experience out of it. But the next one is going to be on, I believe, Saturday, May 9th. And that is our spring date night. Tickets will go on sale probably early April. So if you want to get access to tickets, you can, you know, check our website in early April. And we have so many other great events and absolutely have to give a shout out to our local partners that we have for this Valentine's Day. So Agave, Petitio, and The Harp. These are our restaurants. We'd love to support local businesses. That is Marcy Breffel, Education Manager of the Historic Oakland Cemetery. Thank you so much. Thank you. So for Love Among the Living, there is much more coming up. And in the spirit of romance, this is Billie Holiday's Our Love is Here to Stay. For 
one Indian couple living in Alpharetta. Valentine's Day roughly coincides with the anniversary of their wedding and a marriage arranged by their parents. Uh, my name is Subhu. And my name is Anita. We've known each other for seven years, married for six years, and last week was our sixth wedding anniversary. Anitha and Subhu are both from southern India, where arranged marriages are still common. Living in the United States, however, the origins of their union draws questions. It's definitely like, oh, okay, arranged marriage, what was that like? How can you even marry someone who you've never met before? In the West, the phrase arranged marriage evokes images of forced unions based on familial alliances. But for a younger generation of Indian couples, the modern arranged marriage has taken a decidedly different shape, one that may sound familiar to many Americans. Uh, we are a matrimonial website success story, that's how I like yes. to call it. Um, <laughs> our families registered us on a matrimonial website, kind of like a Tinder yeah. kind of part, maybe? A arranged version of Tinder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> families got to talk to each other yeah. first. At that time, I was back in the U.S., she was in India. Once they felt like there was something there, we were asked to connect. And we started talking and felt the spark immediately. And we said, yes, life has been good since then. <laughs> Subu tracks that spark back to their very first phone call. I still remember the very first time I talked to her. It was supposed to be an introductory call. Mm -hmm. So we didn't expect that call to go beyond five minutes. We ended up talking for almost two hours on yeah. that very first call itself. Yeah. Typically, you don't do that to a stranger. Yeah, but you, um, you just know. You just know that, okay, there's something in this. The two sustained their interest long distance for two months until Subhu traveled to India to meet Anitha for the first time. I was really nervous the first time we were going to meet each other. Literally, the butterflies in the stomach that was happening. Um, I mean, I know we did the whole video calling, so I, I know how he looks like and everything, but this excitement that was kicking in, it was fun, yeah. <laughs> Even a generation or two ago, meeting your spouse before getting married wasn't just uncommon, but forbidden. You know, I used to tell my grandmom that I was going on a couple of dates with him when he came down to India during a courtship period. She'd be like, I met your grandfather on the day of the wedding, and it's funny that you guys are meeting before the wedding, which was not allowed back then. But for us, things have changed. Some might hear a story of arranged marriage and assume that love plays a secondary role. But Subu disagrees. Just because we took the arranged route doesn't mean that you can discount the importance of love. Love is definitely the bedrock of this relationship. Yeah. I believe arranged marriages start their love part after two years. So once we started living together, that's when at least I felt our bonds grew stronger, and we start to you know, love and respect each other. And plenty of people have heard horror stories of arranged marriages gone wrong. And some of those don't work out. But Subu believes there are fundamental misunderstandings of how arranged marriages work. I think Hollywood plays a big part in that misconception. The biggest misconception is that two people are being forced to marry just because parents like each other. That's just not the case. The key difference between love and arranged marriages, parents need to bless that relationship as well. That's the only difference. Otherwise, the love element is intact. It's similar to the Western marriages. Subhu and Anitha now have a one-year-old daughter, Adya. 
And as the realities of arranged marriages change, they also have ideas about her future marriage. We've actually spoken about our daughter's marriage. I know she's just one year old, but it doesn't matter to us. If it's arranged, if she falls in love, it doesn't matter at all, as long as she's happy. Anitha and Subu, an Indian couple living in Alpharetta, Georgia, pulling back the curtain on what one contemporary arranged marriage looks like today. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Maybe it's your aunt's gooey chocolate chip cookies, your dad's special wing sauce, or your grandmother's post-Thanksgiving turkey tetrazzini. Family recipes often get handed down from generation to generation like cherished heirlooms. One family has been updating and sharing its recipe book for nearly 90 years, ever since Irma Rombauer first published Joy of Cooking in 1931. It has become the most popular cookbook in America and a staple of home kitchens. There's a brand new version of it. This is the ninth edition, and it comes from Irma's great-grandson, John Becker, and his wife, Megan Scott. They're going to be in Georgia this weekend to give the closing address at the Savannah Book Festival on Sunday. But right now, they're joining me from Digital One Studios in Portland, Oregon. John and Megan, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. John, your great-grandmother wrote the original Joy of Cooking. I didn't know this, but this was the year after her husband died of suicide. So maybe a way to cope. But she passed away before you were born. So outside of the book history, what, what do you know about your great-grandmother? Well, yeah, uh, you know, Irma grew up in a, in a time when um, women were not expected to necessarily develop uh, professional skills. And um, so, you know, she was, you know, upper middle class. And when her husband, Edgar you know, came down with uh, a debilitating illness as well as financial troubles and, and uh, took his own life. Uh, you know, she had like maybe a year's worth of salary uh, as savings and um, a no real professional skills to fall back on. And so it really was kind of a shot in the dark for her. It was, I think you're right that it might have been a part of the grieving process for her, but she envisioned Joy of Cooking as a way of actually making a living hmm. and, um, you know, staying afloat, as it were. So survival on many levels. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, John, are there any family stories about her that have been passed down that are memorable to you, <laughs> along with all those recipes? You know, I, I feel like I, I know Irma the most uh, just through the revising process for The Joy of Cooking. Right. I mean, with his with his mother, Marion, my father, Ethan, would go to Irma's house and, you know, he he actually gave us this picture, but it's a it's a shape of a pen. <laughs> it's a shape of a puffin or a penguin. Really? And she would always make hot chocolate in this in this picture. Uh, and he remembers that very fondly. And. You know, the one thing that she was super duper enthusiastic about was baking. I mean, you know, before she published Joy of Cooking, she was never really known as like even amongst her friends or the people that had been over to her house. She was known more of a as as a as a good hostess. She was not like renowned for her her cooking skills. Uh, but the one thing that she really really was motivated to to do was bake. I mean, she really liked baking cakes, cookies. You know, that was kind of her specialty. 
Um, yeah, there was a cake she would make for almost everyone's birthday, um, and it's still in the book. It's called the Rombauer Special Chocolate Cake, um, and it's just kind of like a chocolate sheet cake with a fluffy, almost marshmallow-like frosting and a chocolate drizzle. Um, it's really simple, but it's it's really good, and apparently that was what Irma would make for everyone's birthday. Well, this was this is where I first learned to make peanut butter cookies. I think that was the first one from Joy of Cooking when I was a teenager. <laughs> this is a staple in home kitchens, especially throughout the 20th century and beyond. Why do you think, Megan, that it caught on and became so popular? Well, I think initially um, what Irma did with her first edition in 1931 was really unusual. And um, so at the time, most cookbooks were uh, really how-to manuals. They were pretty dry. Um, they were just telling you the facts and giving you recipes. Um, there wasn't really any banter. I know like with modern cookbooks, we expect a little bit of personality or a lot of personality. But what Irma did at the time was pretty unique. And that was she really you know, put her voice into the joy of cooking. She added personal anecdotes or historical asides. She put jokes in there. Um, she was talking directly to her readers. And I think that really resonated at the time. I think, um, you know, the early 1930s was a time when more and more women, especially after, you know, during the Depression, um, people who had been able to afford help um, no longer could. And so more women were entering the kitchen or women were feeling the pressure of like trying to be frugal and save money in their cooking. And I think that what she really was trying to do was um, speak to her readers and give them something fun and interesting to read while they were in the kitchen. Because I think she recognized that, like herself, you know, she didn't necessarily love cooking for the sake of cooking, but she had to do it. And I think she realized that a lot of her readers uh, had to do the same. So she wanted to provide them with something interesting and witty to read and maybe laugh at while they were cooking. Well, the personal connection means a lot in your case. You started working with The Joy of Cooking back in 2010. And Megan, that's when how you and John met. What's the story there? That's right. Um, so I had actually purchased The Joy of Cooking. Um, it was my first cookbook purchase. I moved out of my parents' house and figured out that I actually needed to fend for myself in the kitchen and I had to eat the results of whatever I made. So <laughs> I wanted it to be good. Um, and so I bought The Joy of Cooking and learned how, basically learned a lot of how to cook from Joy over the years. And then um, in 2010, I was working at a bakery in Asheville, North Carolina, and talking with a coworker about how much I love Joy of Cooking. And he said, well, didn't you know that the guy whose family wrote Joy of Cooking works at that coffee shop down the street? Hmm. Um, and I thought he was kind of messing with me. So I went down to that coffee shop after work, and it was a place I had been many, many times. Um, and I asked the barista if he knew anything about this. And it was John who was working, and he sort of blushed and said, yeah, that's my family. <laughs> um, and so I was shocked and amazed. And so we had some more conversations. I eventually asked him out on a date. And then, you know, as time went on, I kind of got sucked into the family business as well. <laughs> <laughs> and John, that's something your family members have been coming out with new versions throughout the 90-year history of the book. This is the ninth edition. So is that on your birth certificate that you're expected to carry the <laughs> torch for the joy of cooking? You know, thankfully, thankfully, no. I think if it had been, I probably would not. I, I probably wouldn't be talking to you about joy of cooking right now. Uh -huh. I, my my father, Ethan, was definitely. I think he felt a little thrust. You know, like the business was thrust upon him, and I think he was very conscientious about that. And he tried to make make it clear to me that I did not. Um, it was not required that I <laughs> dedicate ten years of my life to uh, revising the book, but. 
Um, it was probably maybe six months before I, I met Megan. I definitely had a moment where I had some decisions to make. It was, you know, I was contemplating grad school and, um, you know, I was at, I was at my father's, uh, you know, in, in his library in the basement. I noticed that he had, you know, he had one of these books that I, I you know, I was a literature major. And for some reason, he had like this really specialized book on the shelf uh, that, you know, was d- dealt with like uh, author, author biographies, you know, famous authors. Mm-hmm. And was like, why is this here? Uh, and I was like, oh, well, Irma or Marion must be in there. And, um, you know, in that book, I, I, I encountered a quote <laughs> and it was a very fateful, a very fateful uh, encounter, really. It do, was do you remember t- what it was? Yeah, it was taken from the dedication to the 1963 edition, and the person that was doing the biography of Marion uh, had, you know, reprinted the quote at the end. Uh, but basically, it was, uh, you know, I hope that my sons and their wives keep joy, a family affair, beholden to no one but themselves and to you, uh, you being the reader. And for some reason, it really just... It changed my life. You know, I, I felt like um, for the first time that I had had like, you know, kind of an encounter with Marion, um, mm-hmm. a, a connection. Well, that that is a that dedication is absolutely lovely. And I love that it's my sons and their wives. That's that's kind of nice, too, that this is a I don't know, a more egalitarian. There, there's there's not this kind of sense of domesticity is just for women. Was that part of the, her thinking? I, I think so. Um yeah, well, Marion. Uh, Marion. Um, Marion worked on Joy of Cooking with her husband John, um, and you know I know he was very active, especially in the writing and editing part of of the book. And I don't know that many people know that, but he was certainly involved throughout the entire process. I'm speaking with Megan Scott and John Becker, together authors of the new and updated Joy of Cooking. They're going to be at the Savannah Book Festival this weekend. And this new book, this is a whopper, weighing in at nearly 1,100 pages, more if you count the index. But I'm curious, you know, the last edition of Joy of Cooking came out back in 2006. So how how has this new edition changed? Well, this is going to sound really... Uh, simple-minded, but we really just tried to make everything better. Um, I mean, it's, which was an exhausting task. I mean, uh, well, so, you know, when we first started working on the book, uh, what that really entailed was us basically cooking through the 2006 edition. We started by testing recipes and tracing them back through the different editions to try to get a historical sense of the book, you know, to really just become familiar with it. Maybe three years into that process, we, uh, we actually were approached by an app developer, uh, and we worked with them to turn the 2006 edition into an app. And what that really meant was taking apart the book piece by piece and then putting it back together in a different form. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we really had a good sense of um, not only how it was put together and, and whatnot, but also of um, we had formed a lot of strong opinions about what could be better, you know, uh, what we were missing. Uh, and from that, we created this gigantic outline where we and we created that over, basically after reading the book word by word, <laughs> going through the book like multiple times. And so, you know, the changes, there there are just a ton of changes. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. But Well, I'm know. curious because, you know, my grandmother would use this for, you know, tomato soup and aspic. <laughs> That's not something that people <laughs> right. cook anymore. So maybe may, uh, one of you, if you have some, I've noticed a lot of international recipes, for example, in here. How is this, how is this reflecting the way that we cook now? 
Yeah, there are certainly a lot of um, new international recipes that we felt were important to add because I think um, it's just it is just kind of the way Americans cook now, um, and it's more reflective of kind of the demographics of America and what it means to be an American. And we also added more uh, regional American recipes, for example. Um, St. Louis gooey butter cake. We added um, Buckeyes, the little peanut butter and chocolate candies from Ohio. Mm-hmm. We added Chicago-style deep dish pizza. And so, you know, these are things that we felt should have probably been in the book before but had never made an appearance. So we felt in some ways that we were adding things that had been missing in the canonical sense um, and also updating it to more reflect um, what America is like today. Right. You didn't find banh mi or Lebanese spinach pies or banana leaf tamales in previous versions. And we do. We no, li- absolutely not. Well, we <clears> live <throat> in a much different food world, obviously, than we did even in 2006, where foodie culture is huge. That's not to mention meat-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan diets. So how did contemporary food culture influence this new edition? Well, you know, I, I, as with everybody else, I guess, uh, you know, we're completely immersed in that culture and, you know, try to really pay attention to what's happening. But, um, I mean, we were driven, I think, mostly by like, okay, what, what kind of ingredients are people able to find these days? You know, what, what, what has changed in that respect? And how do you utilize those in a home kitchen situation? Um, also anticipating um, questions that we think home cooks are going to have. So, for example, we talk a lot about, um, you know, we talk about sustainability when it comes to seafood and fish fraud. We go over, you know, like uh, we talk about olive oil and how to source it and know that it's actually real olive oil and not diluted with something else. Um, so we try to think about all these problems that a home cook is going to face either at the grocery store or in their own kitchen and address those. I guess there's another whole legacy here that because recipes have been handed down from person to person, and I think a lot of people have that picture in their kitchen of where their mother kept the joy of cooking or where it's at. So your family food legacy, John, is connecting to the food legacy of a lot of different Americans. What does that feel like to you? It's it's been astounding when when I when we first started working for the book I just had no idea the kind of connections that we would be making with complete strangers um, I, I I really do feel like we've been that my family has been invited to, into other people's homes for um, a long time and as a result you know a lot of these people that we talk to and um, and their families have been able to you know pass down the book have really invested a lot of emotion in, uh, in what it means. And, you know, it's not necessarily our book anymore. And I feel like that, you know, that dedication that Marianne wrote, um, you know, especially the, the last part, just being beholden to readers, is really kind of gets to, gets to the center of what, what that relationship is like. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there, there are, we're behind the book. We, and, you know, my grandmother was quite real, <laughs> Ethan quite real, but it's something that people can, can make their own. And I think that a lot of the time, um, you know, like a, a family copy of The Joy, it, it's, it's not necessarily our book. It's, you know, somebody's mother's cookbook. It's a grandmother's cookbook. I was going to add that, um, you know, when we a lot of times when we talk to readers, whether it's in person or through an email or on social media, they'll say something like, oh, I have the original version of Joy of Cooking. And 
we are usually like, well, if you do, would you sell it to us? Because they're really rare and we only have one copy ourselves. Hmm. Um, but usually they have, you know, the 70s or the 60s edition. But to them, it is the original joy of cooking. And that's, I think, what John means when he says people really take ownership of the book is that when they have, you know, their grandmother's copy or their great grandmother's copy, to them, that's the original and that's all that matters. Um, and so in some ways, you know, we put the book out there into the world and John's family has been putting this book out into the world. But people have really, our readers have really adopted it and taken it into their homes and made it their own. Um, and I think that's what really makes the book special and different. Well, Irma Rombauer was a woman who taught so many people so much about cooking and being in the kitchen. As you were going through and testing recipes and looking at these old editions and trying new things, is there anything that you discovered that might bring her joy? What would that be? <laughs> um, she was a huge fan of oysters. So I'm thinking that, like, maybe a nice oyster bisque or, <laughs> or uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, I think more than anything, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint specific recipes because it's such a different era when you think about the things we eat and the ingredients that are available to us. So I think a lot of our new recipes might seem a little strange to her. I don't know if she would love a lot of them. Um, but I think she would be really thrilled that her, you know, she originally called it her little book, that her little book has lived on for um, 90 years and is still growing and changing and evolving with the times. John Becker, Megan Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. It was oh, great to be here. It was a pleasure. John Becker is great-grandson of Irma S. Rombauer, the original author of Joy of Cooking. They've just together come out with a new edition of the book, and they're going to be in Georgia this weekend to give the closing address at the Savannah Book Festival. It's on Sunday, February 16th at 2 at the Trustees Theater. You can find more information at gpbnews.org. We're going to leave you with I Like Pie, I Like Cake by the Four Clefs as we head into a short break. But stick around. We're going to get some pics from the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. I like pie. I like cake. I like anything you bake. I like your crackers, too. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Atlanta Jewish Film Festival began on February 10th and runs through the 27th. Now in its 20th year, it is the largest film festival, not just in Atlanta, but all of Georgia. And in 2015, it attracted more moviegoers than any Jewish film festival in the world, more than 38,000 attendees. Jason Evans is Film Evaluation Co-Chair. He's with us to talk about some of the offerings this year. Jason, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Well, so let's talk about some of the films in a minute. But first, maybe clear up a misconception about the festival. Sure. That all the films are going to be explicitly about being Jewish. God, it, it, no. Well, no, when it, one of the talks all. this year is what makes a film Jewish. So what do you say to that? Uh, so I think what makes a film Jewish, uh, there, there has to be some thread. There has to be something in it that relates to the Jewish experience. Um, maybe a character is Jewish. Maybe there are characters who are dealing with, with issues that are brought up. Uh, in the Torah and and you know and, and a part of Jewish life, but it, it it is not like every single one of our films is some Holocaust drama or or something about life in Israel. That's a misconception that we really want to clear up. I mean, I'll give you a great example. There is a film, I think one of the best films in the festival is a film called J Myself. 
It's a documentary about a photographer from New York who lives in a six-story bank building that he's owned for like 30 years, um, and he has filled this entire building. Let's be clear. In Manhattan, he owns a six-story building all by himself. He's filled every inch of this building with junk, with stuff he takes pictures of. He's one of the greatest photographers in the world. And he finally decides he has to sell the building because the tax bill is killing him. And it actually ends up being the largest private land sale in New York history. I haven't said anything Jewish yet. <laughs> Jay Maisel, the photographer, again, an award-winning photographer, one of the greatest photographers in the world. Jay Maisel happens to be Jewish. A couple times in the film, he mentions his you know, Jewish upbringing. His daughter has a bar mitzvah. But that's it. You wouldn't watch this film and go, I just saw a Jewish film. What you saw was an incredible documentary about a remarkable man and, and the process of him deconstructing his whole life and moving it on, which is a, a really cool, interesting thing. I didn't think I'd be a fan of it. I saw this movie, and I'm like, that's one of the best documentaries I've seen all year. But it's not expressly Jewish in any way other than the character happens to be Jewish. Well, let's just hear a clip from that film. What I'm trying to do all the time is to try and see things anew. To see things the way a child would see them. There may also be the assumption that films would need to take on a pro-Israeli stance if they're going to be in this festival. Oh, goodness, no, no. Well, I can see from the titles that isn't true. We are living in a hyper-partisan moment. Has there been any backlash from within the Jewish community for films that might be critical of Israel or a hardline Israeli stance? I think one of the things that we strive for is to create a conversation. One of the things, Kenny Blank, uh, Arthur Blank's son, is the head of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival and has been for many years. He's the executive director. And one of the things that Kenny has said to me uh, in my involvement with the festival over the years is it's not just going to the movies. It's going to the movies, experiencing a film, and then talking about it. Every film before the film will have an introduction, have someone who presents the topic to you a little bit, just gives you a you know, three to five minute setup for what you're about to see. Uh, with many of our films, we have panels. We have Q&A after the film, often with filmmakers, with directors, with actors, with experts on the, on the topic, where as an audience, we interact with them and we talk to them about, you know, what did you do? What did you see? What happened in this movie that affected you? So it's a conversation that you're having. Sometimes those conversations are not 100% positive about Israel or about the Jewish community. There are times we have to ask questions Did we do the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? I think that is what makes a vibrant community. And and, and that's one of the roles of film in our society. Yeah, it's great to be entertained. But when you look at the the best pictures that Hollywood produces, the best best films every year, they are films that spark you to talk and think. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, another film, Abe, has generated a lot of buzz. It's about a young boy growing up in a half-Jewish-Israeli, half-Palestinian Muslim family. His biggest passion in life is cooking, which he decides to learn from a Brazilian chef in Brooklyn, played by the great Brazilian actor and singer Seo Jorge, drew a lot of buzz at Sundance. So what are you hoping that film festival filmgoers are going to take away from a film well, like that? Well, one of the wonderful things about Abe is it's really a film about food. Um, Abe is played by Noah Schnapp from uh, Stranger Things. He gets really into cooking and into food fusion, and he decides that he can fuse the two sides of his family, the Palestinian side and the, and the Jewish side. He can fuse them together with his, with his uh, culinary expertise. So I think everyone loves a, a film that really embraces the art of cooking. And, uh, boy, it's one of these movies that after you watch it, you're like, oh, my gosh, I've got to go out and get a meal. So I, I think people really love it for that reason. But it's got some really wonderful performances. I think it does a nice job of addressing 
the, the questions of whether or not we can fuse what feel like enemies into friends, into people who can live together and work together. It's a delightful film. My, my committee adored it. Well, another film, The Keeper, fictionalized retelling of the true story of Bert Troutman. He was a Nazi soldier turned Manchester football, or as we call it, soccer star, just after World War II. Troutman passed away in 2013, telling a story of a Nazi soldier in a Jewish film. How did yeah, that go? So th- this is, I wish I'd brought this up earlier. This is a great example. We talked about the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Here's a movie where there are really no Jewish characters in it at all. It is about, uh, as you mentioned, Bert Troutman was a Nazi soldier. He, he did not embrace the Nazi ideals. He was fighting for Germany, not for Nazism. And when the war ended, he decided that he wanted to stay in Germany. He'd been a prisoner of war. He wants to stay in Germany. And he becomes one of the greatest goalkeepers in Premier League history. The great thing about this film, <laughs> I, I, when I watch this film, I usually watch a film all the way through uh, till, till it ends. I watched 45 minutes of this film and I stopped. And I'll tell you the reason why. I was loving it so much. I said, it is clear that this is a movie that belongs in the festival. But I wanted, I was watching it on my, my iPhone. <laughs> I said, I want to see this on a big screen. I, I, I want to see it in a darkened theater where I really immerse myself in it. So I stopped watching because I wanted to see the whole thing complete in a theater. So I'm so eager for it to be at the festival. I watched it a while ago. We evaluated this film a while ago. And, and again, we instantly said, this must be in the festival. It, it, it's a it's a delightful film. Any soccer fan, if you're an Atlanta United person, go see this movie because it, it, it tells a great story of soccer and also romance and redemption. My guest is Jason Evans. He's co-chair of the Film Evaluation Committee for Atlanta's Jewish Film Festival. It's running through February 27th. You can take a look at their dizzying website. There is just film after film <laughs> after film that you can see in several different venues. Well, you're speaking to something that I think is interesting. There is that communal experience coming together in a darkened theater, nothing like watching it. something yeah. together. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing like being, uh, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about having a conversation. Um, uh, so often we watch them on, on our phone, we watch them on our iPad or or computer or whatever it may be. And when it ends, you're not able to turn to the person next to you and chat about what you've just seen. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, that's something that streaming as, as great as streaming is in terms of the amount of content we're able to get our access to. We've lost some of the water cooler effect. We've lost some of the, the conversation that we have about what we just saw not to, not saying that you can't talk to someone about what you saw streaming, but it's not the same as experiencing it together, literally sitting shoulder by shoulder, sharing a box of popcorn, and then having the conversation. Another fan favorite has been Last Week at Ed's, which tracks the final weeks of a beloved West Hollywood diner that served as an institution for the local community. Here's just a clip from the film where visitors discuss the role that Ed's played in building community. I'll be in New York City, and a guy will pass, and I'll say, hmm. Where do I know him from? And he looked at me and said, Ed's Coffee Shop. You feel and you sense uh, welcome. Now you say you're more of a narrative film person, but this year the AJFF documentaries are, quote, off the charts good. You oh, mentioned yeah. Jay myself, certainly. And how about this one? A poignant film clocks in just about 40 minutes. Why do you think it resonated so much with people? This is by Lawrence Kasdan, a legendary filmmaker in Hollywood. He wrote The Empire Strikes Back. He's been involved with many, many other... He's involved with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Lawrence Kasdan is very involved with this film. I think the thing that struck a chord with all of us is, even if you've never been to Ed's, you have been to Ed's because you've been to something like it. And and so many people saw this film and they recognized a piece of their own history in this piece of Hollywood history. One film that drew our editorial team's eye 
was Saul and Ruby to life, exclamation point. It's about two Holocaust survivors who decide to start a band. Here's a clip from the trailer. When I decided to put together a Holocaust survivor band, I went to my wife, Clara. I told her what I want to do. One, two, ready, go. So she told me, you're crazy. Then I went to my rabbi, told him the same story. He told me also I'm crazy. So my instinct told me that just on the contrary, because they told me I'm crazy, I'm going to do it. I have to say that all of us on our (laughs) OST team found this man absolutely delightful. But the film also touches on loss and longing and, and I think reclaiming the self. He's doing this to share the music that sustained him when he was in the concentration camp. Right. That's what's great about it. Yes. It's, it's not just, first of all, it's, it's two men in their late 80s, early 90s, who are refusing to accept old age, Mm. uh, which we all can admire, and they have great personalities. They're so funny, as you heard. But it's also two men who experience the Holocaust and, and want to share that experience. You know, we're, as a society... We're, we're losing our Holocaust survivors. There are not many of them left. But that's why a film like this that lets you in on some of the horror, but in a very accessible way, and, and to see it as people who conquered it, who lived through it and grew as a result. It's, a very power- it's our closing night film, uh, and it's just delightful. Which night is that? Uh, the 27th. Okay, the 27th. We mentioned that the water cooler conversations. But there's also one of the great things about a film festival is there are panels. There are people who are discussing the films. How does that enhance the experience of these films? Whenever we walk out of a movie, we want to talk to other people about what we just saw, even if it's just to say, I liked it, I didn't like it. When you have a panel, then you have a even larger conversation and you often gain perspective about the film that you wouldn't have otherwise uh, been able to experience. And and our panels, quite often, we're, we're bringing, uh, we talked about The Keeper earlier, David Cross, the star of The Keeper, who's a huge star in Germany. He's been in many Hollywood films. You will recognize him instantly. He's coming to town, um, and he's going to talk about his process of making this movie and how he found the character uh, of Burt Troutman. And, And we do that kind of thing over and over again. I mean, when you walk out of a regular film, it's just you talking to your friends. Imagine the value of being able to talk to the director, the screenwriter, the actors, an expert from a local university who has studied that topic and perhaps written a dissertation on it. The, the amount of knowledge that you gain is just incalculable. And, and it really, if you're someone who loves film, your appreciation of it grows exponentially. Well, you're someone who loves film. You're a film critic outside <laughs> of your involvement with the festival. So what draws you to work on this event year after year as you've done? Well, uh, what drew me to it was I went to some of the movies and I saw how good the films were. And I said to myself, wait a second, I I would never have gotten to experience this if members of my community hadn't said to me, come, come to this festival, come see these movies. And I began to get involved. At first, I was involved in guest programming, which is picking those people, those experts to be on the panels. And and then I began doing film evaluation, which was a natural for me because I am, as you said, I'm a film critic. We see so many great films that don't even make it into this festival. The ones that make it in are off the charts. And the opportunity to to be a part of that process, to help decide this one is so special that we should show it to our, to our community is, is something I could not pass up. And I've, I've just loved it. Well, you are a film critic. We've got you here. What are some of your picks for 
got to see this film at the Jewish Film Festival. I think there, there are a few films that I think are absolute must-sees. One of them is Incitement. It is a film about the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli wow. prime minister. Um, it is told 100% from the perspective of the assassin, and it integrates archival footage from that time with recreations. It was Israel's submission for the best Israeli film at the Academy Awards. It is a truly great movie. There's a film called After Class that is about the Me Too movement and safe spaces that you absolutely must have a conversation about the moment you walk out of it. It's an incredibly powerful film. It features a number of very recognizable Hollywood stars, a, a great movie. And then there's a documentary called Picture of His Life that is about an, uh, an Israeli underwater photographer. This is perhaps the greatest underwater photographer in the world. And the picture that he wants, the one picture he's never gotten, is of a polar bear feeding in the water. The one problem with, with him being able to take this picture of a polar bear is he has to be in the water with the polar bear, and he might become the polar bear's meal. <laughs> it's a great film. Those are, I mean, there are so many great ones, but those are sort of the three films that I say do not miss them. Jason Evans, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jason Evans is co-chair of the Film Evaluation Committee for Atlanta's Jewish Film Festival. Movies from the festival are playing in select theaters across the Atlanta area through February 27th. You can go to their website, ajff.org, to see more. The Atlanta Symphony Orchestra is celebrating its 75th anniversary with special events throughout the season. Next week, Thomas Sundegaard returns to Atlanta to conduct music by Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Or, as our resident Finn points out, Sibelius. Violinist Blake Pouliot will make his ASO debut performing Northern Lights Part 1, the Sibelius Violin Concerto. Also on the program, Sibelius's Sixth and Seventh Symphonies. You're hearing number seven now from an earlier recording by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Also on tap next week, the most famous piece by Sibelius, a tone poem called Finlandia. Composed in 1899, Finlandia has roots in political protest after Russia, which ruled Finland at the time, sought to control the small Scandinavian country through press censorship and other restrictions, Finnish artists responded by creating art to express their opposition, including Sibelius. Here is the Minnesota Orchestra performing Finlandia. The symphony opens with tense, ominous brass notes, evocative of the oppression and destruction caused by Russian conquerors. The introduction of strings and woodwinds brings, at first, a solemn calm. Mm -hmm. 
which becomes increasingly bright and spirited. These emotions, alternately serene and triumphant, are carried throughout the rest of the piece. With this work, Sibelius wanted to portray Finland's awakening and its fighting spirit. In fact, the piece was first performed as Finland Awakes, and only later came to be known as it is now as Finlandia. In the early 20th century, Finlandia was banned by Russian censors and was sometimes performed under alternate names. It became symbolic of the Finnish national character and an emblem of the country's struggle for independence from Russia. Finland did achieve independence from Russia in 1917, just 17 years after Finlandia premiered in Helsinki. That's Finlandia by composer Jean Sibelius. You can hear it live at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra on February 20th and 22nd as part of their 75th anniversary season programming. And follow along with this and other exciting happenings from the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra on social media with the hashtag ASO75. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks, as always, for listening to On Second Thought.